Welcome to Euractiv's Tech Brief Podcast. My name is Alina Klaasen, your technology reporter. This week, we look at the negotiations of the UN Cybercrime Convention. For an overview of all things technology in the EU, sign up for a free newsletter or visit the website Euractiv.com. Recently, we also launched the Euractiv app for iOS and Android. This is Euractiv's Tech Brief Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Nick Ashton Hart, Senior Director at APCO Worldwide and Head of the Delegation of the Cybersecurity Tech Accord. With a career in the ICT sector, he currently covers the UN General Assembly's Global Cybersecurity and Cybercrime Convention. Hi, Nick. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Thanks for joining. So in late 2017, Moscow penned a letter to the UN Secretary General proposing a draft for the new convention on combating cybercrime. Two years later, Russia tabled a draft resolution with the support of Belarus, Cambodia, China, North Korea, Myanmar, Nicaragua and Venezuela. The resolution was adopted in November 2019, despite the opposition of EU countries, the United States and other liberal democracies. The negotiations have reflected the clash between the two camps, liberal democracies and autocratic regimes. An example of that is that Europe wants to add reference that cooperation under the convention must be within the borders of international law, respect fundamental freedoms and protect human rights. These are all formulations Russia and China are aiming to delete. Human rights organizations feared the convention would result in law enforcement authorities being able to access personal data without independent or judicial oversight and use electronic surveillance to interfere with the rights to privacy. With the lack of consensus on the scope and terminology has prompted civil society to call for the rejection of the convention in its current form last week. The concluding session, which ended on Friday, was suspended for a later date and not put to vote yet. So, Nick, thanks for being here. And I would like to dive into that by asking you, is there anything you would like to add? And what were the main issues from the time of the proposal by Russia to the last session that ended this Friday? Um, I guess I would start with one uh, sort of strategic Uh, point, which is the way in which Russia proposed this convention to be developed is a, is a significant departure from how international treaties are negotiated. Historically, uh, when you make treaty law, the, the negotiations always take place by consensus because otherwise you have an outcome does not have the possibility to become extremely widely adhered to by states. And this is especially true with crime conventions, which are always negotiated in Vienna and by consensus. Russia's departure here was to take it away from Vienna and give it to New York and allow the possibility of voting, which is one major departure. And the second was to provide a very short time frame for the negotiations to, con to conclude, which is you know, less than three years, basically. The backdrop to this whole negotiation is that if the if the result of this negotiation is seen as a victory for Russia and, and the proponents whom you, you listed, then it will become a model for treaty development that is used for other subjects. And the Russians are known publicly to want 
other treaties related to and the information space generally. So this was a carefully chosen topic to depart from traditional treaty making practice. So you have to also account for this when you are looking at the process because this is, is, is underneath everything. Everyone is aware of this. And in fact, the model that Russia chose to use for this convention process has already been essentially copied by the African group when it successfully got a, a General Assembly resolution to develop a global treaty on the taxation of companies through the General Assembly last autumn. So the, that, is, that is underneath everything. What is on top of this is that the convention has been very difficult to negotiate in, in large part because everyone in the room does not share the same objective. The stated objective is to develop the first cybercrime convention. But in fact, there is this political objective that Russia and its friends who proposed this process have uh, to conclude a, a treaty by essentially majority instead of by consensus. And then you have a practical objective, which is the objective of a large body of mostly developing countries who are not party to the existing Council of Europe Budapest Convention and, and don't receive enough cooperation on cybercrime, which is a legitimate interest the private sector supports strongly. We would like to see more effective international cooperation on, on cybercrime, as would many others. And then one other group is the group of Budapest parties, which is currently 68 countries. They already have an effective mechanism for cooperation on cybercrime. And in fact, any non-European country that wants to live up to the objectives of Budapest and, and its terms may join Budapest irrespective of whether they're European or not. So that, that has been a challenge because there are these diff, very different views. This has resulted in a negotiation which is also uh, reflective of this. For example, the proposal of the Arab countries, Russia, China, several others, has been to make this treaty apply not just to cybercrime, but to any crime at all, especially for the collection of electronic evidence. Uh, naturally, there are countries who object to this because they signed up to be to create a, a cybercrime convention. What they're getting is the broadest crime convention. If it were agreed in, in the form that those states want, this would be a broader crime convention than any other uh, crime convention that exists. These divisions exist in terms on, on a very basic level as to what is the objective which has made agreement very difficult to find on anything else. Because of course, as soon as you have a very broad scope, then for many, many states, especially the more democratic states, they will want more and more safeguards to prevent abuses. Um, and, and there are many countries in the room who would, would rather not have safeguards, they would rather just have the powers. And so there's really very little that the whole room agrees on, except that there should be more cooperation on cybercrime. But how to do that is not the subject of, of a lot of agreement. And since you already mentioned that there are so many different objectives by different countries, and given that that makes it very difficult for negotiations, um, I was wondering if you could also dive a little bit deeper into the position of the EU and liberal democracies, and also explain a bit better the reviewing of the negotiation of the concluding session, basically what caused the deadlock during the past 10 days. Sure. I think that the liberal democracies made a fundamental error at the outset of the negotiations. They took the view that since the Budapest Convention was working well for many states, that simply reproposing many of the terms of Budapest as the basis for this convention would produce a similar result. And the fundamental mistake is that Budapest is not simply the text of the Budapest Convention. 
It was also adopted with a 60-page explanatory report, which actually makes clear all of the underlying rule of law-based safeguards, the need for warrants, judicial review of decisions, transparency, uh, that, that certain public good activities are not to be seen as infringing the convention's provisions and the like. But they didn't propose any of those only the text in the convention. So you can think of Budapest, it's a little like an iceberg, where there's a little bit that you see, which is the text of the convention proper, and then a great deal that you don't see, which is all the rule of law safeguards that you're supposed to have. And, and the reason that Budapest was written this way is because it was adopted by European states with a shared common understanding of the rule of law and the rights of the individual and human rights and all the rest. So they didn't feel they needed to put that specifically in the convention's text. But of course, this, this major mistake by Budapest parties has had profound effects because their starting position was that the whole world would get the benefits of Budapest without the, the safeguards that protect against abusive use of very wide-ranging powers. Because remember, when this was adopted, it was 2001. Data protection was not as serious a business as it, as it is now. The provisions on data protection are therefore fairly meager and so forth. And so the other side, of course, didn't want any protections anyway, not, partic not really. They didn't really want safeguards anyway. They just wanted the powers. So they leapt on this and proposed much more draconian powers. Abolition of all safeguard measures is, is still a position of most of the Arab states, for example. And, and so the, the Western states, the, the democratic states, were already making massive concessions without intending to from the beginning. This created a real problem for everyone else because while states started out looking they, they made that mistake that I've just mentioned. Then they made another. They, they looked at what they were proposing through the lens of how they would use the powers that they were, that they were proposing for, for everyone else. They didn't look at how the powers would be used by others towards them. And so they weren't seeing how the, the, the lack of safeguards would play out when, when a non-democratic state was looking for data uh, uh, for, for other crimes, and they weren't prepared when other participating states came came to the table with a long list of crimes, most of them not having really anything to do with cybercrime, and some of them, many of them not being crimes at all. There were, there were sedition and fake news was proposed as a crime, uh, terrorism, genocide, uh, drug trafficking. There were, there were dozens of these crimes put in. So, so the West were on the back foot all the time because they had started out from such a bad negotiating position. Um, and and I, in, in conversation with them uh, privately during the, the, the last session, many of them said, you know, you were right when you told us early on, you can't just propose Budapest. You actually have to propose the, the treaty text and the safeguards. And we should have, we should have listened. Unfortunately, they didn't. And now we are in the position that we're in. Um, since you mentioned the safeguards, could you give some of the examples that would have been needed in order to um, make the whole proposal more secure for human rights? And also the fact that there was such a broad scope um, and there were still um, discussions on terminolo uh, terminology during the concluding sessions. Why were the UN member states not able to reach a consensus? You mentioned that because some countries came along with a long list of crimes. Um, they were in a bad position. 
So maybe you can also be a bit, um, dive a little bit more into that. So here's a perfect example of where the strategic mistake hits the practical. So if you read Budapest, the list of safeguards um, is, is relatively short in the text itself, but there are many more that are in the explanatory report. So for example, the Budapest does not mention that uh, the public essentially has a right to know how their data is used and who uses it. This is not, this is not present in, in the Budapest and only to an extent in the explanatory note. What is clear though, is that warrants expire. So if a state asks another state for personal information on you, for example, um, the warrant for that will expire after a certain period of time. And of course, court proceedings um, are public also after a time. And so as soon as an investigation is over or a prosecution is, is concluded, the facts of the case and the people who are implicated in it becomes a matter of public record that anyone can see. But this is just an automatic assumption because we're in Europe and this is like very basic rule of law. And there's also the right, of course, to appeal. Moreover, service providers in, in the democratic world, if they receive a request from law enforcement for data, have an automatic ability to go to court to challenge it. Well, this, is, this isn't written in Budapest because it didn't need to be, but it wasn't proposed by member states either. So you have a situation to this day, the convention has, has mentions confidentiality of, of what states are doing when they cooperate with each other in, in the convention eight times. There is no transparency provision of any kind anywhere and so you have a situation where literally any state can request information from any other state on any crime, as it's currently worded in the text, that is, quote unquote, serious, uh, meaning that it carries a penalty of four years of incarceration or more. And all of that is kept secret in perpetuity. So as we are fond of telling delegates, we, we don't see how you can have a secret data access convention for the personal information of individuals in 2024 that bears the name of the United Nations, that that's simply unjustifiable at a basic level, a fundamental level. And while the member states will sort of look sheepish when you bring this up, as we frequently do, not one of them has proposed to do anything about it, even though they have received many proposals from, from us and from others to address this. And the argument that they have used up to now is, well, it's not in Budapest. And it actually is. Again, if you look at it across the body of the explanatory report and the convention itself, they're just only looking at the text of the convention. And um, it's puzzling to me, really, why the democracies, with the exception of, uh, I will say, the exception of Canada and New Zealand, who have been passionate and very vocal in speaking out about the dangers that the convention has and have relentlessly pushed for the kinds of measures that would actually be uh, protective of people, ruling out, uh, for example, that the, 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 the treaty's powers could not be used for any political related activity. And they could not be used um, for any, it, it, to penalize a person for any identifying characteristic like gender 
or sexual orientation. But none of them, even that, nobody has promote, proposed any transparency, despite the fact that I think we all know the adage of you really understand what people are like if you put them in a room and turn the lights off for a while. That's basically what's happening here, is the, the, the member states are proposing to let themselves police themselves in total secrecy if they want for as long as they want. And I think we know that there is absolutely no likelihood that that situation would not be abused, even by democratic states. There are always people who you know, ask for too much data about a person, for example. Uh, providers are still asked for people's entire email inbox um, by, by law enforcement, and they go to court and say no sorry, we're not going to hand over the whole person's inbox. You have to be a bit more specific than that. Um, and this is just in the West. So imagine you're, in, you're, you're operating in a state where law enforcement asks for data. You cannot go to court to contest the request. And in some countries, if you don't hand it over, you will in fact be charged as an accessory to the crime that, you, that is being investigated. India, for example, uh, is, is like this. Um, detectives can, can demand data without a court order. This is this is why even the, the very limited safeguards that currently exist, most of them are still subject to domestic law, meaning basically that the state concerned will implement the safeguards the way that they want, which doesn't mean that they will actually have effect. It just means that they have freedom to do what they like. And, and we have argued that we, we need safeguards that are implemented according to international human rights law and that there has to be a, a level of transparency. Otherwise, say a person has a human rights-based safeguard, as they do in certain circumstances under the convention and its current text, if they don't know their rights are being infringed with all the secrecy, they're in no position to, to seek a remedy for it. And, and we, have, we have brought this up uh, many times. Why would countries behave the way the, the convention suggests that they should if they if no one will ever know if they haven't. And I remember that um, the Cybersecurity Tech Accord, along with other NGOs and human rights organizations, has also submitted an open letter addressed to the convention's chair to reject its current form, where you also mentioned the lack of um, human rights safeguards. And do you think that the open letter has also had an effect on the final decision to suspend uh, the session, the concluding session? Um, yes, I, I, it, that's, it's worth noting that. So the one of I've been involved in international public policy since the, the 1990s. And generally, the private sector and civil society have some overlapping um, common positions, but many divergent positions, as you might expect. This convention has produced unanimity across all NGOs and all of industry in a way I have never seen and, and hope never to see again, because that level of unanimity would tell you that things are badly wrong <laughs> if, if everyone who is not a government thinks the governments are making huge mistakes. And that was the purpose of the joint letter, was to, was to make sure the delegations understood that we strongly disagreed with them adopting the text as it stood late in the second week. Um, we, we, we didn't believe that the text was fit for purpose for the sixth session or the, or the seventh session. And, and while some, some positive changes were, were made during the seventh session, by no means are the main, the main problems fixed. Um, we were told that the position of the private sector and civil society 
was the reason why, especially the EU and, and, and other uh, Western like-minded states did not agree to the contents of the treaty as the chair proposed them late in the second week. Industry took a very unusual position in advance of the of the session by saying to member states openly, if the text wasn't amended in very substantial ways, industry would oppose any state ratifying it. I, I've also never seen the private sector do this before an agreement is finished uh, ever in my life. It, but it was the, the level of harm that it would have done to, to commerce and human rights was and is so profound that that was the only choice that we felt we could make um, that the states would really hear because as they, they, they all know that, that the U.S.'s data, for, for the states who actually want to cooperate under this convention, they, they know they need the U.S. to be a part of it. And they also know that the U.S. needs to get 60 votes in the Senate for any new international agreement. And uh, it, it, it's very hard for that bar to be met in the best of times, but there is virtually no chance of that being achieved if the private sector and civil society were both opposing uh, the ratification of the convention when it reached the Senate. And the U.S. was pretty open, uh, even through the microphone, in saying when, when stakeholders spoke and were universally negative, that they hoped other other negotiators in the room were listening because the U.S. and many other states had to actually get parliamentary approval uh, for this convention, and they needed their stakeholders in order to do it. So there's no, there's no doubt in my mind, and we were told very explicitly, that the, the EU would have taken the last compromise that was offered by the chair, but they were already getting calls in their capitals from MPs concerned about what they were reading about the convention and looking to hold hearings on it. And so everyone felt that it was really the, the most sensible thing was to, was to stop the clock, as we say, and suspend the session until later in July. At a practical level, it was a pretty universal thing on a practical level, because even if agreement had been, if the, a text had been, had been agreed on Thursday, nobody can go through a new international convention, especially one that's complicated in capitals from a legal point of view, in 24 hours. It's too, it's, it's not practically possible. So, so there was wide, a wide understanding that while differences had been narrowed in certain respects, there was no way to agree a final outcome at this, at this session. But there's no doubt that civil society and industry were the reason why they didn't get to a final a text that they would accept. You've already mentioned that there was no agreement or vote reached in the concluding session as it was suspended. What is the hope and the purpose of resuming at another later date for another 10 days? Well, we'll see if it's 10 days. There's, there are a lot of states who would like it to be five. Uh, I personally hope it's five because uh, I've now spent 14 weeks just, just in the room of the negotiations, let alone the time spent uh, discussing it and working on it outside of the formal meetings. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's exhausting for everyone, especially, especially smaller countries are, are saying that this has become very, very burdensome. Um, I think that one of the main benefits is it allows everyone to go away and look at what is in the convention now and say, is it even internally consistent with each other? Have we actually agreed to th on, on things which are conflictual? And are there any provisions that actually will would conflict with existing international legal obligations? I actually think that there's real risk that is that they do conflict the, the, the current state of the articles on child sexual abuse materials 
and intimate images sharing would actually allow the criminalization of children and the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child actually prevents the criminalization of children, except in very limited circumstances. So I, I actually think that they're going to go away and, and realize they have to make some changes on a basic um, legal consistency level. There's also a great deal of, of, of lack of agreement about the, the content of some of these of some of these provisions, which the intervening period will allow the member states to work together to try and narrow some of those and work with, with stakeholders like ourselves uh, at the same time. Okay, and um, given that it would be only another five days likely, do you think that there will be an agreement or a vote given that it was so complex to do negotiations and given the deadlock? It's hard to predict with any accuracy. <laughs> it's a, it's the, that's the million-dollar question. Most of the states have a very significant resistance to voting because voting on the adoption of treaties is not done uh, for the reasons previously stated. And so the precedent that it would set to do that is not a good one in the view of, I would say, the vast majority of states. So I think they will try very hard not to be voting. And, and to resist any attempts by states who try to stop voting. But we will see if that actually turns out to be possible. The other problem with voting is if you're voting, on, you start, once you start voting, you're not going to stop. And so then you'll be voting yes or no on individual sentences, individual paragraphs and articles. And you may end up then with you voted for something, but two of the articles conflict with each other the way in which you've adopted them. So then how do you stop and go fix them if you're voting again? Um, so it, it, it creates real procedural problems too. My, my hope is that they won't vote because I, I, I don't want to see voting on international law become a normal thing. I think it would be very harmful. But we'll have to see how far they get on the substance. Well, thank you very much for talking with me about the UN Cybercrime Convention and thanks for your time. That's all we've got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up for our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. I'm your technology reporter Alina Klasen and thank you for listening. <music>